Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. What would the world look like if China achieves its ambitions and how would that be different from the way it looks today? Well, I think it looks like a a 19th century world, a world that is sort of pre-international norms and rules in which uh, states can exercise their policies and their desires with a degree of freedom that really allows that power is essentially the only thing that is a determinant of whether they're, they're able to do it or not. Matt Turpin is a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution specializing in U.S. policy towards China, economic statecraft, and technology innovation. He is also a senior advisor at Palantir Technologies. From 2018 to 2019, Matt served as the U.S. National Security Council's Director for China and as the senior advisor on China to the Secretary of Commerce. Before entering the White House, Matt served over 22 years in the U.S. Army in a variety of positions, including serving as an advisor on China to the chairman and vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I just sat down with Matt to talk about his career and about China. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor, Lockheed Martin. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Matt, I want to start by asking you a bit about your career. You attended and graduated from the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. I want to ask you, how did you end up there? What attracted you about serving in the military? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's sort of a way back machine kind of question. Yeah. Um, I entered West Point in, in 1991. Um, 
you know, and, and obviously we had sort of just, you know, the summer of 1991. So we had just, we had just fought the, the, the Gulf war. Um, I had been kind of interested, uh, in the military. I, my, my dad is a college professor. Yeah. I'd had grandfathers in the military and an aunt and uncle. Um, but I had no real experience, but it seemed like something exciting. It seemed like something that I could kind of belong to. Um, and as a high school student coming out of Southern California, uh, amazingly, there were not a whole bunch of people that wanted to go to upstate New York. Uh, to go to <laughs> uh, so, so my ability to get into to West Point uh, was much easier than my ability to get into the Naval Academy or the Air Force Academy. It just sort of turned out that way. But it was something that I was interested in, but really didn't have any idea of what it was like. I'd never been to West Point before. Uh, I showed up the day before uh, reception day uh, mm-hmm. you know, and drove in on a bus from like Newark, New Jersey, you know, the entire bus was silent as everyone was realizing that, that this was sort of the end for, you know, quite a while. Right. Um, and we'd be getting off and getting yelled at and harassed. And, uh, and it turned out to be exactly that way for, for a couple of years. So, yeah. And then where did your interest in China come from? Oh, well, um, so yeah, I, I did not actually spend any of my academic career you know, whether it was as an undergrad or, or at graduate school, I, I actually you know, have a graduate degree in American history from UNC Chapel Hill. Um, and it wasn't really until about, you know, a little over a decade ago, as I took an assignment, where I got to choose between an assignment, you know, being a liaison officer at the Pentagon for CENTCOM, right? So focused on the Middle East, mm-hmm. or I could go be a war planner out in Honolulu at Pacific Command. And that was a, that was a pretty easy choice all things considered. Uh, and so that, that was 2010. And obviously that was sort of the, the beginning of, of, of a pivot, you know, or a rebalance to Asia. Um, and so I got sort of a front row seat as, as sort of the U S policy community began to pivot and, and rebalance towards the challenges that we saw in Asia. Um, and so have been kind of doing that for, you know, I guess a little over a decade now, um, but that's how I got into it. It wasn't it wasn't necessarily that I had sort of a long career as uh, you know I wouldn't necessarily be called a a classic China hand. Yeah, I was much more interested in U.S. policy, um, sort of what our national security and foreign policy interests were. It just happened to be that that Beijing was beginning to pose some of the most important challenges, which is what which what pushed me into that area. So what? What did you learn about China in that job um, at Pacific Command? What? How did well, that shape your views? Yeah. Well, I mean, it gave me a a, a pretty in, intense understanding um, of of our military challenge, um, as well as a view of 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 how our allies and partners viewed the U.S. position, um, you know, this was a period of time. Uh, so this was sort of, you know, near the beginning of, of the Obama administration. Um, you know, there was clear efforts by, by the administration to begin to sort of rebalance what it was focused on. And I got to sort of see that up close, you know, from, from a headquarters that, that was looking at it every day. Right. Um, and you know, I, you know, one of the most important things that sort of, I, you know, one of the most sort of, uh, you know, 
influential things on my thinking was the whole experience around uh, the the earthquake, tsunami, and nuclear accident in Japan in, in March of 2011, um, and and where we had been with with the Japanese government and the U.S. government and sort of our relations up until that point. There had been some drifting, um, and it was in, it was increasingly difficult to see how the U.S. and Japan uh, would continue to operate as an alliance. That experience really sort of reset the U.S.-Japanese relationship, um, you know, and then that that you know kind of came on the heels of 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 a number of things that that was happening to Japan, and really a a, a, a real appreciation of of what the what the U.S.'s role. Um, and how we would interact with its allies um, and got to watch that up close with some really impressive leaders uh, at Pacific Command, um, you know, as well as our folks on the ground in Japan, um, you know, that, that the U.S. and Japan could work together um, and could sort of re-cement its alliance and begin to deal with sort of an increasingly aggressive um, and assertive Beijing that was sort of stressing that international system. Um, and so I, yeah, that, that, that period of time sort of 2011 to 2012 was, was quite instrumental in, at least in my thinking and, and made me realize this is something that we needed to spend much more time on. And it's, and it's what I, I decided to then sort of, you know, not necessarily return to the regular army, uh, but, but take a job back in the Pentagon sort of running China strategy uh, in the joint staff for what ended up being four years working for, uh, you know, General Dempsey and then, and then General Dunford, uh, Admiral Winnefeld and, and General Selva, as well as, as Deputy Secretary Work, um, which, which, which was very, very much instrumental in my kind of thinking about what the challenges were and how the United States would have to begin to, to respond. And in what way? Um, yeah. So, I mean, this, this period, um, you know, you know, by early 2013, you have Xi Jinping coming to power, um, and you have you know, sort of two modes of thought inside the U.S. government sort of forming. One that that sort of our strategy that had been in place for uh, really about two to to two and a half decades, you know, a strategy of of using economic engagement to drive political liberalization. It was, in, it was becoming sort of frayed that that, that that strategy was not necessarily resulting in the outcomes that, that we had expected, right? right? We were certainly seeing some spectacular economic progress inside the PRC. And, and, and so, you know, from that sense, you know, our intention to help the Chinese economy develop seemed to be working quite well. But the other half of it, which is that we would then expect to see political liberalization, right? Greater freedoms, uh, greater transparency, um, you know, the, the a strengthening of the rule of law, uh, you know, sort of a division of powers. Clearly, as, as Xi Jinping came in and sort of re-cemented the position of the party, it became increasingly hard to see how that strategy of economic engagement was resulting in the outcomes that what we wanted to see. And that we needed to, to sort of wrestle with the implications of a change in our strategy, right? And that, you know, that, that transition point, and that right transition point kind of happened between, you know, sort of late 2013 
Um, and then, you know, certainly by the end of the Obama administration, a realization that that we were likely going to have to pursue a different course um, and adopt a new strategy uh, to to secure U.S. interests um, and to protect you know the interests of our allies. Matt, then you go to the White House as the director for China on the staff of the National Security Council and as an advisor on China to the Secretary of Commerce. Let me ask you two questions, real quick questions. One, were were you still in the military at that point or had you um, retired? I had uh, I retired the summer of, of 2017 and then interviewed with Secretary Ross during, during my time in, in terminal leave um, from the military up Terminal leave is sort of the, the last leave you take in the military. It's it sounds worse than it is. Um, and then I, I I took the job at at, at the White House and, and with the Commerce Department in in January of 2018. So uh, I had about a six month window from from leaving the military and then you know coming back in as as an appointee. And then did you do both of those jobs at once, the Commerce job and the NSC job, or did one transition into the other? So um, the the Commerce job. I was hired to to take that job to then be a, a detailee to the White House. So that that those were simultaneous. Um, got to know the team at at, at Commerce. Um, you know, an absolutely critical department that probably doesn't get nearly the attention or uh, you know sort of interest from the national security community. So I felt you know absolutely critical to sort of be there and was felt myself quite lucky uh, to work in that department. But but spent you know was on on detail to the National Security Council for my for my entire time other, other than sort of two weeks on either end and this this period of time is really the beginning of the shaping of a new US approach to China right we had gone through that realization yep. that you talked about right from 2010 to 2014 15 16 and this was this was the beginning of a new approach can you talk about that a little bit yeah, well, that and that new approach, you know, certainly became, you know, the 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 outlines of it. You could see in a series of of speeches and and, and documents that you know, at the time I remember Deputy Secretary of Defense Work Bob Work, you know, making uh, you know going out and engaging with our European allies to talk about the kinds of things that both China and Russia were doing. You'll remember, you know, obviously, at the same time, you've got you know realization that that our approach towards Moscow. Uh, also, uh, was not resulting in the kinds of outcomes that that we had wanted, and so you sort of had these dual challenges. You know, both uh, Moscow and Beijing coming up at the same time, and that there would need to be sort of a new approach. And so, you know, part of this, you know, certainly the language of competition. You know, certainly the summer of 2016, you've got folks like you know Secretary Carter. Uh, you know, testifying along with 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 General Dunford, you know, about a need for sort of, of viewing our relationship with both Moscow and Beijing as as competitive, and then you know the Trump administration comes in uh, in early twenty you know January twenty seventeen, and begins really a, a policy process you know largely led by 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 General McMaster, uh, who then leads the sort of the, the National Security Council you know through a policy process. That arrives at a at a national security strategy that lays out you know strategic competition with both Moscow and Beijing are sort of our principal focuses you know and that's published in in December of 2018 or 2017 um, but you'll remember that that 
you know, for instance, the Section 301 investigation, which was really an investigation of, of China's sort of economic behavior, uh, begins in August of 17. And you can see that, that you know, there is a, there's an effort to sort of create a, a holistic approach, both a, an economic policy and a national security policy that, that are, are combined in a way to be able to, to begin to compete with the PRC. And for, for too long, we had sort of viewed those two elements of our policy, both an economic policy and a national security policy, as sort of separate things existing in separate worlds. Right. Um, and really an effort to bring those things together in terms of shorthand. This is sort of, you know, that, that economic security is national security. Um, and so you have a number of these sort of, sort of you know, sayings that are sort of going out there. But it's really reflecting sort of a, a wrestling with the, with the idea that ultimately in a world in which you've got other great powers that are using sort of all means at their disposal and, and particularly in sort of the economic, commercial and financial spaces to compete with us, that, that you know, untying our hand from behind our back and, and beginning to sort of use various sort of economic tools was something that we would have to consider, you know, much more strongly. Um, and so, you know, to me, this is, there's a there's a lot of continuity here from from the kinds of things that that you had folks in the Department of Defense, as as well as Penny Pritzker at at, at the Commerce Department, in the Obama administration, in which they're looking at sort of Chinese industrial policies, how they harm the United States, how they sort of undermine you know, elements of our national security and our allies, and that we would begin to have to wrestle with. What do we do in response to this? Um, and that, you know, in, in true sort of Washington fashion, uh, you know, that's a messy debate that unfolds over time. But because we can discuss these things sort of out in the open, at a certain point in time, you begin to have sort of a degree of, of consensus forming that ultimately we're in a different position than we had been, you know, a decade before with Beijing. So, Matt, I want to switch to China directly, if that's okay. And I want to ask you... Sure two questions. And to be honest, the second of which I have a hard time finding someone to answer with the kind of precision that I think is necessary to kind of bring the country along with us here. The first question is, can you describe the world order that China would like to see? In other words, what would the world look like if China achieves its ambitions and how would that be different from the way it looks today? Yeah. Um, well, I think it looks like a, a 19th century world in which, uh, you know, a, a, a world that is sort of, of pre international norms and rules, uh, in which, uh, states can exercise, you know, their policies and their desires with a degree of freedom um, that that really you know, allows that that power is essentially the only thing that is a determinant of whether they're they're able to do it or not. Um, you know, I, certainly Beijing has has benefited you know economically over the past sort of four decades from a stable international order that allows them. To, to, to grow as an economic power um, and a, as a wider sort of national power. But I also believe it, it's quite clear that, that they view those conditions as, as constraints 
on Beijing achieving sort of you know what the party lays out for itself, and, and certainly what what Xi Jinping both you know, and I think you know the the, the amazing continuity between his the speech he gave as an inaugural speech in, in January of 2013 to the Central Committee as he took power, and the one that he gave last week um, on the 100th anniversary of of the Chinese Communist Party, you know, viewing himself as as you know viewing the the party and 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 the Chinese nation as in a as in a sort of historical struggle to to remake this the the international system to secure what Beijing thinks and, and particularly the party thinks. Uh, is the appropriate ways uh, for their governance to run, and that that would look very different than an idea of rule of law, of sort of separations of power, um, of transparency, and that while I don't think that Beijing seeks to to install the you know a clone of the Chinese Communist Party in every country around the world, um, it it doesn't want a system that that confines or undermines the Beijing's ability to achieve what it wants to do. So it's much more for them about themselves and that the rest of the world needs to get out of the way uh, as opposed to making the rest of the world look like them. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Then we'll be right back with more of a discussion with Matt Turpin. (sighs) The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Matt, a couple of kind of sub-questions to sure. that first one, what does what does Beijing want to use its unconstrained power for? Is it to sustain their economy and sustain the party? Is it for other reasons? That power that they want to use in that unconstrained way, what's the bottom line for them? What's the objective? Yeah. Um, I mean, there there is, I think there is a sort of a, a wide debate, right? Um, you know, and 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 some of the debate within sort of the community of of, of China watchers and, and and those that are looking at it, you know, one side of it I think sees that that simply China simply wants to realize sort of a peer status in the world and then sort of take its place within an international system and then make sort of minor changes around the edges of that international system. Um, I, I think you know, I think that's a, a wishful. Idea that that certainly is an idea that we in in both the United States and probably our friends in Europe and in Japan, you know, could reconcile with. We we could reconcile if that was the the extent right. of Beijing's desires. I'm I'm increasingly concerned, and I think you know there are plenty of others that that watch as well. That that Beijing actually has a much broader uh, set of intentions that the PRC. Views itself, uh, you know, in the in the broad national rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, and that that the PRC's rightful place is at sort of the center of of the global order, and that until those that the global order is nearly completely reordered around the party's intentions, that it won't be enough, and that there are many things that that they view 
in in sort of a nationalist sense as you know crimes against the Chinese nation that took place you know in the 19th and 20th centuries that would need to be rectified and that you know those are certainly around borders um, and and are about sort of reestablishing the PRC's place in the world and and so I think that's sort of a nationalist angle of it but mm. I think there is also sort of deep party ideology there's there's a tendency for us to think that that the Chinese Communist Party is not communist um, and that they don't actually believe any of the ideology you know, that comes from a Marxism, Leninism, and Stalinist background, right? About, about party organization um, and about how the party should rule and its, its mission in essentially achieving you know, broad social revolution. And, and I think to a certain degree, you know, that's again also wishful thinking on our part. It, it's really convenient for us to sort of want to think that, you know, so the communism of, of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union is, has been relegated to the dustbin of history and that our, our friends in Beijing have learned that that's not the way to go. Um, but increasingly, it, it appears that, that that language and that ideology infuses much of what the party says to itself. And I just I tend to think, you know, as, as a historian, I, I tend to think that that folks, you know, when they make speeches and and write papers and and continuously harp on things, right, that they're in a, a long term struggle between, uh, you know, socialism and capitalism, that they actually believe some of those things. That those things, those terms, and that that language is not simply thrown out um, as fluff on the side of a broader speech, but are actually the centerpiece. Um, of what of what the party believes, and certainly Xi Jinping believes, right? That that they believe that there is a broad ideological struggle going on uh, about you know different forms of governance and testing of which system is better. Um, and so, for the United States, if we're interested in maintaining an international system which privileges democracies, which privileges the rule of law and, and, and privileges individual rights, then, then we likely have to stand up for that. Yeah. Um, it isn't going to happen on its own. Um, and, and the PRC would, would prefer a world where those, those values are not privileged and that, that what you see is actually the privileging of an aristocracy, a red aristocracy inside the PRC. Um, you know, privileging the idea that that the state controls uh, outcomes and does so for the benefit of of the ruling regime as opposed to its individual citizens, and that sort of many of the things that we would want to see is further progress in in from a from a U.S. perspective, um, and for other democracies would be very difficult in a kind of world that was reordered around what Beijing has in mind. So, Matt, you mentioned Xi's speech last week at the 100th anniversary of the founding of the party. And one of the things that I found interesting about the speech, and I'd love to get your reaction to this, is it didn't sound like the country that was ready to take its place at the center of things, right? It, 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 it sounded to me like, like there was a lot of insecurity in the speech. And I'm wondering if you sense the same thing, and if so, why that tone? Do they really feel like they're not quite there yet. To what extent are they worried about us? Where do, where do you think that tone came from? Well, I mean, that, certainly that tone did not arise uh, last week, right? Um, 
you know, there, I mean, there's this, there's this, I, I think, you know, longstanding paradox, um, you know, within the Chinese Communist Party, but, but, but ultimately within other sort of authoritarian sort of Leninist model parties um, in which sort of, you know, a relatively small band of, of elites, um, you know, seeks to, to claim exclusive rule that can't be challenged. And it, that part of the ways that they legitimize that rule is by trying to assure their population that, that any potential benefit uh, that they might want, that they've gained or what they want in the future can only come through the stabilizing force of that aristocracy. And that without them, that the country would fall into chaos and that everything would be disastrous. And I think that for, for the Chinese Communist Party, you know, that is a, that is a sort of a well-ingrained concept, right? You know, deeply, deeply established. But I think that, that they have to continuously struggle with the fact that there are, there are just a lot of places in the world where ruling parties get voted out of power and the entire society doesn't collapse. And, and it suggests that maybe that entire sort of ideology that they must be allowed to continue to rule no matter what. Um, and that, that if they don't rule, that completely complete disaster faces the nation. You know, it's without a significant effort to continuously sort of stress that, that, propaganda position, right? That, that, gotcha. that, that assertion that folks begin to ask questions about, is that really true? Yeah. Right? And so, you know, I think, you know, that is one of the underlying things. It's, it's, it's almost as if it's a shrill sort of language of, you know, we are unstoppable. Um, and you know, our, our legitimacy and, and rule is completely unquestionable. You know, the lady doth protest too much. Yeah. Thing. We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters. I'm Michael Morrell. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So Matt, the second question I wanted to ask you is what are the specific downsides to us, to the United States and China achieving the world that they're trying to create? You know, would our standard of living be lower than it otherwise would be? Would our privacy and civil liberties be put at risk? Would the world be a less stable place? Et cetera, et cetera. You know, in other words, how to explain to somebody in the United States why we should see China as such a significant challenge and to treat it as such? Yeah. I mean, we, we could sort of take any number of these Sort of angles, but you know, maybe I'll start with sort of the sort of the economic side, and and you know, I mean, there was a there was a thesis broadly held across sort of of you know policy communities that that 
by allowing China into the WTO, even though it had not become a market economy, right? So even though that it didn't essentially have, you know, didn't follow ideas of free markets and, and hadn't implemented the policies that would, that would have the states step out of control of, of economic policy um, or, or step out you know, of control of, of, of how prices were determined and things like that, which, which was the standard that we had set for nearly every other country to join the WTO. Um, that there had been this theory that that through through comparative advantages and, and everything else, that we would find ourselves you know in a significantly better position, and we would have resulted in sort of political liberalization within the PRC. Well, we didn't we didn't get the second, but increasingly it was clear clear and and you know I certainly you know by by early 2016 you have a number of economists writing about the China shock, right? right. So the the implications of of what China's entry into the WTO, um, their failure to fulfill their commitments to the to the entry into the WTO, right? So they you know, they were not a market economy yet, but but they essentially had made commitments that they would become a market economy. They would continue liberalization reforms, but those liberalization reforms you know really began to taper off significantly as as China entered the WTO, and 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 certainly the Chinese state. Never stepped away from from an idea that 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 they would be the ultimate arbiter of how the account, economy ran, and and while we saw a blossoming of, of private enterprise, you know we also saw you know continued intervention and subsidization, which then undermined you know U.S. manufacturing and undermined a number of parts of the U.S. economy, and I think it was the announcement of, of China's policy of, of made in China 2025, you know in 2015, which which essentially laid out that that. What China had done to low-value manufacturing, right? Textiles and you know simple electronics and uh, you know and various in- industrials, and that they would take those same tactics and apply them to high-value manufacturing, which which for the United States, for Japan, for Korea, for for our European friends, you know these were the this was the lifeblood of our economic prosperity, and that 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 the PRC would begin to apply those same tactics. To be able to gain, uh, you know, national champions and and execute the same sort of playbook on high value manufacturing, which really is sits at the centerpiece of of U.S. economic prosperity, and that if that were to to, to play out, that it would be extremely damaging uh, to our own prosperity. And so, you know, what we had seen happen across the Rust Belt, where sort of U.S. manufacturing was carved out as you move to lower you know, lower cost labor inside the PRC. Um, you know, a period of of what, what was called globalization, but I think you know, it was really much more accurately be to be seen as hyper concentration of manufacturing uh, on the east coast of China. That that created real impacts inside the United States in terms of of economic prosperity, and and certainly there are claims that that well well consumers can purchase things for for less money, but if you're not making a paycheck. You know, slightly less cost is really not all that much of a uh, of a bomb to that broader problem of of sort of losing your livelihood. Right. And so I think you know that that is what we sort of saw kind of going forward from an economic perspective. If Beijing achieves what you know it it is laying out that it wants to be able to do, um, you know, we could we could kind of go on to what like sort of what the world would look like. Um, but yeah, you know, I think our one one aspect of it is that that you will be very much limited into sort of what you can say and think, 
Um, so if you touch on things that 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 the party does not find, you know, the party objects to, um, that there will be sort of extraterritorial reach of how your thoughts are regulated, uh, what you can see on the internet, what you can be allowed to say. Um, we've seen American citizens, you know, inside the United States, you know, be coerced and, and retaliated against for for things that you know they would say online, um, and and that 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 would generally find itself established across the world. And we would find ourselves in just a very much less free area and that countries would feel obliged to limit the, the, the speech and protests of their own citizens in order to stay on the right side of Beijing. And, yeah. and to me, that's, that's, a, that's a very disturbing world to find ourselves in. So Matt, what will determine who wins this competition, who wins this struggle for what the world is going to look like? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, one, I'd, I'd say that, you know, I've, I've often compared us as just sort of being like in a, you know, in an endless relay race and that each of us sort of has sort of a race to run, but there isn't necessarily a clear finish line. Yeah. Um, you know, it is a matter of making ourselves better. Um, and certainly I think the Biden administration, you know, has come out very strong in, in laying out its case about, you know, in a long-term competition with, with authoritarian states, you know, like the one that is represented from, by the Chinese Communist Party, that, that we need to make ourselves better. Um, and, and so that's, I think, a, a critical component of it. And I'm, I'm optimistic to see the kinds of things that are being sort of put forward uh, to be able to realize that. You know, but obviously, that isn't the only thing that you've got to be able to do. I mean, it, you you also want to make sure that it's it's more costly for your competitor to achieve their objectives, and that requires so so both a combination of carrots and sticks to help you achieve your objectives and undermine your competitor from achieving their objectives. And that yeah, you know, that that may sit sort of wrong with 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 some folks who who would think that. You know, what we should be striving for is, is full-on cooperation. You know, I, I wish that were the world we lived in, but it would appear, you know, very clearly to me that that is not the sort of approach that Beijing wants. They would want us to cooperate with their objectives while they compete strenuously uh, to, achieve, uh, to achieve their own objectives and undermine ours. And, and that's just sort of the world that we live in. And, and so I think that's kind of what we've got right now. And, uh, so maybe I'll stop there. So how do you think this ends? Are you, there is no finish line, of course, but are you optimistic or are you pessimistic about our ability to compete with this country and its vision of the world? Well, I'm, I'm very optimistic. I mean, I, I, um, yeah, you and I have talked about this before. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, I think we should be very confident in our ability to compete over the long term. Um, you know, we, we need to understand sort of what the stakes are, but I mean, Americans and our friends around the world who, who also enjoy this international system, you know, as, as we are motivated to be able to, to protect what we, what we value, I think that we have enormous advantages. And I think, you know, what you brought up earlier about sort of the, the tone inside Xi Jinping's speech last week as well as the tone that we've seen, whether it's through through wolf warrior diplomacy or various other areas, um, 
it suggests a real deep concern inside the Communist Party about their ability over time to be able to do this. And, and so I think, I think we should be confident, but that does not mean that it will be easy. Right. Um, we will have to make sacrifices and invest significant resources to be able to do this over time. But I think, our, I think the kind of world we want in the future is worth those investments. And, and we, shouldn't be, we shouldn't shy away from them. We should also be very open and discuss it amongst ourselves, right? There isn't, it is not as if all of these things are over and the debate is over and that we just have to resign ourselves to, to a long-term competition. I, you know, I welcome that we have a long-term debate about this um, and that we continuously have, have the discussion out there because obviously Beijing could choose another direction. And if they chose to do so, um, we should welcome that. Right. If they chose to essentially say you know, these are things that you know, there are things that we're going to align with the United States and, and other democracies uh, on on reinforcing, we should be ready to accept that, but cautious of their intentions, but but absolutely ready to embrace it should they choose to do so. But really, make the investments we need to make here at home, and push back on them and make their life more difficult if they go in the wrong direction. Right, and and I think it, we also need to be aware that. That that tactic, right? That that strategy that I that 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 you just described, I think very well, will elicit from Beijing the ideas that 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 will lead to sort of inevitable conflict, and that we should abandon that strategy. And I think that's also a degree of a you know shows their their real concern yeah. because that approach, right? Do our own thing better and compete with them vigorously. And build sort of alliances to be able to make that happen is what scares Beijing, right? And one of the things they will seek to do to sort of take us off that game is to try to convince us that by pushing back against them, it will lead to conflict and war and and, and catastrophe. And and I think we should, you know, we should remain mindful of that, but we should not let that kind of language deter us from from doing the kinds of things that we probably know are right to do. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Um, This has been a great discussion, and we hope to have you back again sometime. Well, thank you, Michael. That was Matt Turpin. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. This show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Jake Rosen, Paulina Smolinski, and Ashley Armstrong. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS Audio. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey.